Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talked to Panos Siosos, the co-founder and CEO of LearnWorlds, a white-label SaaS platform that lets you create your own personally branded online school. This is a story of three guys in Greece who built an e-learning software product while doing research for their PhDs. At the time, they had no intention to start a business. But some years later, after seeing how most learning management systems miss the mark for them, they teamed up and set out to build a better product. Two of the founders kept their day jobs and paid the salary of the third founder so he could quit his job and work on the product full time. It took them two years to ship the product. And then to their dismay, they realized that while people seemed excited about their product, no one was ready to buy. It took them another year to find their first few customers. That's three years after they started. And during those three years, there were times when they thought about quitting, but they'd invested so much time and money that it was hard for them to walk away. They kept telling themselves, let's just get in front of more people. Let's listen to the feedback and keep improving the product. And maybe one day this will all pay off. Today, they have customers in 70 countries, a team of 40 people, and have built a multi-million dollar SaaS company. It's a great story, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Panos, welcome to the show. Hi, Omar. Thanks for having me. So do you have a favorite quote, something that inspires you or motivates you or just gets you out of bed? Yes, it's uh, getting better every single day. And for people who aren't familiar with LearnWills, can you tell us what does the product do, who is it for, and what's the main problem you're helping to solve? Mm-hmm. Effectively, we are a Shopify for online courses. So we're an uh, e-learning platform where people can create and sell online courses. And uh, uh, our customers are professional trainers and coaches and speakers and uh, training organizations. So uh, effectively, we help them do uh, retail e-learning and sell directly their own courses to their own customers. Now, the company was founded in 2014, and it's a UK-based company, but the team is based in Greece. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were mainly we are Greeks and uh, and Cypriots. Uh, we founded the company in the UK because, as you remember, the financial situation in Europe and especially in in Greece and Cyprus a few years ago was terrible. So it mm-hmm. wasn't an option to to create a, a business here. Uh, but uh, now, because of Brexit, actually, we are moving our operations or so the headquarters and and everything out of the UK and into Cyprus. So because we want to stay as part of the European Union. Got it. Okay. So let's kind of set the scene a little bit and and talk about the the product, the size of the business. So LearnWorlds currently is a multiple seven-figure business. For most of your journey, the, the business was bootstrapped, although you have raised about a million euros. Tell me a little bit about how the product actually works and how it's different from maybe some of the other products out there. Mm -hmm. We're combining an e-learning platform with an e-commerce platform. 
Uh, perhaps now this is something that seems uh, like uh, self-evident and uh, everybody wants to or has seen platforms like that or there are several. Sometimes I, I think that there's one new platform being created, being launched every every week. But a few years back when we started, this wasn't very easy. The, the, the people are mostly familiar with learning management systems, which are like the traditional tools used for e-learning, especially in corporate environments or in academic environments. But these tools are what gives e-learning a bad name. So these are platforms deal mostly with the management of learning, but not with the learning itself. Uh, what we created, in fact, in, in, uh, with our platform is an easy, lightweight learning management system. So we're a course platform, and we give lots of emphasis on the learner experience, like how people learn. So we try, when we're creating an online course, the usual experience that people had is they were just being thrown a PDF or a video and uh, that was considered to be e-learning. And after watching a couple of videos or being sent a few PDFs, they were supposed to have learned something and have acquired a new skill. But this is not how people learn. This is not how we work. And this is our understanding. This That was the knowledge that we had uh, acquired by our studies before doing uh, LearnWorlds. Uh, and we focused a lot on creating an e-learning platform with stellar learner experience and giving people sleek, digital, beautiful experiences. And, and this is what people are used to having these days. I mean, we're used to having to with our gaming devices and our tablets and our iPads and all this stuff. So we want to create a great learning experience where people will go in, they will consume video, they will consume ebooks, they will be happy with the, the, their learning journey, and uh, they will be happy to be paying for a, for a product, for a knowledge product that they have purchased. So a lot of products that I've seen that in you know, online course products often they're built by founders who either had a personal itch they needed to scratch and and build something or they'd maybe use some sort of learning management system and thought that they could do better but what I found interesting about Learnworlds and you and your two co-founders is that like before you guys like even thought about building this business, you spent years actually studying the whole concept of e-learning. So tell me a little bit about that, because I think I want to try to sort of set the scene here in terms of like how deep the, the three of you got into the whole idea of e-learning before you even sort of got to the point where you said, let's let's build a software business. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, we have a very strong background in R&D. And in fact, we started as researchers, not as uh, entrepreneurs or uh, like wannabe startups or anything else. So uh, after finishing, after conclu- we're three co-founders, after concluding studies in computer science, we did postgraduate studies in uh, educational technology. And two of the founders, we received PhDs degrees out of this uh, process. So in this process, what we were doing, we were building e-learning platforms, not commercial platforms, but we were researching and uh, publishing papers and uh, trying to see what is the state of the art and invent the state of the art or combine and create products that work. So we need lots of research and uh, lots of evidence-based, obviously, uh, efforts to to create the best possible platforms around e-learning. So we were doing that for about 10 years working in research projects, national and international research projects, publishing papers. We never had an idea about 
actually creating a business and, and selling the software. So we're creating a great platform, publishing a couple of papers, and then off we went to the next project or to the next platform. But uh, during this process, obviously, we acquired lots of know-how. So we, we knew we were seeing the trends. We were seeing the state of the art. And also, we were, we were becoming increasingly very dissatisfied, or almost pissed off, I would say, with the kind of platforms that were out there. So people were, were using some products that we were considered to be very much behind of what we consider to be the state of the art of e-learning. And uh, at some point, after several years, after completing our degrees and even working in different jobs as software engineers or researchers or stuff like that, we came back together and we still figured out that we had it, that we still knew what we could do better than the, than the rest. And uh, we saw an opportunity in creating a product that would be commercial, something that would be far better than the, what the competition had to offer. That was around end of 2011, early 2012. There were some online companies, being online learning companies being created back then. You might remember, you obviously know Linda, or you might remember Team Treehouse. So we saw there an opportunity. All the expertise that we had, but now lots more new tools, like it was much easier to develop products. Cloud computing was like prevalent. Uh, so we were, it was much easier to launch a company and even to do marketing in a, in a global scale. So we came together, took all our expertise and started creating a, a platform for, uh, for this space. And so that was around, what, 2013, 2014 when you started? We started designing at the end of 2011. And then it took us uh, two years to create the actual platform. So that was a, a, a very, we were, uh, I guess we were in, in a bunker. We weren't lucky enough to have a, uh, to have a garage. That's the, the usual metaphor, you know, people starting, starting a startup in a garage. We didn't even have that. We were remote, a remote team in three different cities, uh, two different countries, and uh, we were working. We had day jobs and uh, nights and weekends we were working on the platform. But also because e-learning is kind of complex, so it's not really easy to do an MVP. It's not really easy to just do a few pages and test it with people and say that you have something. So we went all in and we, we obviously we spent two years of our lives creating what we thought would be the best platform for creating and selling online courses. So that was a very grueling process and also difficult process. We were hunkered down creating the, the platform and that took us two years before we were able to go out and present the platform to, to potential users and potential customers. So the three of you were working day jobs at the time. This was this was basically a side project for you guys. That was a side project for the first few months. And then what we did is one of, uh, of the three co-founders, uh, I guess, sacrificed himself and went in the project full-time. So the other two had to cover his expenses. So that, that was our experience. We are friends now for about 25 years, the three co-founders. So we were family. Probably the things that we did wouldn't have been possible with normal co-founders that have like a professional relationship. So what we did is actually we were financing one of us who went into the project full-time, and then we brought in one of our ex-students. So we got him out of the university, and he came to us, uh, started working for us as a junior developer, and we were making do with the, with the funds that we had gathered from previous jobs and external projects that we were doing, just trying to keep this project alive and, and uh, trying to give it the resources that it needed in order to be developed and uh, developed into a full platform. So for almost two years, 
two of you guys were paying the salary of the other founder as well as this this student that you you brought on yes yes did, did you guys have a formal agreement or a company set up or was this just no never it was just a, a gentleman's agreement that, it was it was a, a project we, we really believed in and, and we still treat it we're we're i guess closer than a family in many in many respects so uh, we didn't have any agreements it was only only very late when we put things in in paper and uh, like formalized it in terms of like shares and stuff like that so you, you you said for two years we were in a bunker and that sort of suggests there weren't a lot of conversations going on with customers at that point. Is that true? Uh, I, yes, it's it's very true. I guess we did everything the other way around. So if we started again, we would probably have been much more agile and like uh, try to like create prototypes and, and put it out there. We were certain and in many respects, uh, we were right that we knew what had to be done, but we definitely, if we did it again, we would have put out the product in front of customers much, much earlier. So effectively what we did is we created, we designed and uh, and created the platform for two years. In, during this, this time, we were speaking with potential customers, but these were usually like theoretical discussions. People didn't really know what we had to offer and sometimes didn't even know their own needs and what they wanted from, from a platform like that. So it wasn't easy to to always find much. So yeah, that, that was a, a, a very introvert period where we were building the product, refining the product, but only based on our own feedback or feedback of like colleagues, but not of uh, putting it in front of actual uh, customers. I was having a conversation with with some of the members of our Plus community yesterday, and we were talking about tech stacks. So just out of curiosity, like what what was the tech stack that you built LearnWorlds on? It, it was pretty, I guess, uh, mundane. Uh, so it, it was MongoDB and PHP and lots and lots of uh, custom handwritten JavaScript without any uh, fancy frameworks. So it was just stuff that worked. That, that was the expertise that we also had. So w- when you are working in a university or in a, in, an, uh, in a research project, you don't really need technologies that scale a lot. So you're doing things a small way and lots of, of custom handmade things. So this is how the platform started initially. Is that what you're still using today? Is it mostly like PHP and sort of vanilla JavaScript or have you evolved from that? Well, we, we evolved a lot. Uh, there's lots of uh, new, uh, new expertise and new technologies. So the schools, obviously, that we're running are much, much bigger than what have we had in mind. We, at that point, we were designing schools and we thought that if a school would have 1,000 customers, that would have been a success. Right now, we have schools that regularly daily run with more than 300,000 users. So obviously, uh, lots of things have changed uh, internally. Lots of analytics, for example, we have to use platforms for uh, data analytics like BigQuery and stuff like that. So there's lots of uh, technologies changing every day. So at the end of the two years, you, you sort of come out of the bunker, the product is ready, and what happens when you... We come out of a bunker and we realize that Europe is almost in a state of, uh, and also in, in, in many ways the rest of the world is in a state of a financial war. So there's a huge crisis happening around. It's uh, and we we have a, a product that we are very confident about the product and we try to sell it to companies and nobody at that point, especially in Europe, 
and especially in Greece. If you remember, we, we are, we're coming from Greece. There is lots of discussion, even if Greece should stay in the European Union or be expelled from the European Union. So we don't even, uh, we're approaching companies and telling them like to use a software product. And that's uh, the, obviously that doesn't work. Uh, people are not investing and not testing new things, even if uh, e-learning seems to be the right thing to do. It's like very cost efficient and it allows you to do to do things uh, much more uh, effectively without spending lots of time and money. Uh, companies are very very reluctant to to invest in a, in a product, and also professional trainers and all the people that we had in mind who would be our first customers. So we had to find and hunt down our customers. We did a couple of pilot projects. We were happy to find a couple of customers in Greece. And, and we started like uh, creating, the, launching the first online schools and uh, seeing the first successful sales, like actual students coming into one of our customers' online schools and purchasing one or two uh, courses. That was uh, monumental for us. But then we also realized that the European market is a far behind U.S. market when it comes to online courses, e-commerce, and also the willingness to test a new platform, an innovative platform or something that is untested that comes from a, from a new startup. So we, at that point, it was obvious for us that we should really only address the U.S. market. It was strange, very strange sometimes. We were talking with uh, uh, with European customers who were very reluctant to work from a start- with a startup from, from Greece. And they were asking us like things that were like, what will happen if Greece uh, next month goes out of the European Union or if there's no way for us to, to pay you guys or to get paid? So things that, that should, shouldn't have been an issue in a, normal, in a normal functioning economy and society. On the other hand, we were talking with U.S. potential customers who were much more risk tolerant. They really liked the product. They were really excited that we were coming from Greece or wherever they they didn't really care. If the product did what they wanted it to do, then they were really willing to to test it and use the platform. So we're very lucky at that point uh, to uh, get a few customers from the U.S. who had experience in creating and selling online courses who really liked the platform and then the new things that we want, we knew we were bringing into the market, they really liked those. They gave us a chance. They started using the platform. They gave us lots of very harsh feedback and very difficult feedback, but also very valuable for us. So we started working with them very, very fast, improving the platform, customizing the platform and making it work for this, uh, for this customer. So that, that, at that point, we went out of this bunker. We faced reality. We realized that we had to adapt very, very fast, adapt our understanding, conform to what the market actually needs and not what the, to the theory that we had in our minds. And uh, that was, uh, at that point, we entered an, a very fast uh, cycle of uh, development and in continuous improvement and development and refine, which we still continue to this day. So I guess that, that was the, the point where our theoretical understanding and our research background that we are the experts of e-learning and we know how this works. This is the point where we face the reality of actual e-commerce and facing customers that have built already businesses, e-commerce businesses, and knew how to sell in a natural 
market. So they gave us very frank feedback and very valuable feedback that we put into the practice. And at that point, our great platform, which was uh, also uh, very uh, abstract in, in some ways, became very, very practical and very much adapted to the actual necessities of e-commerce and, and the way things work in the actual life. So when you came out of the bunker after two years, there was a period where once you got the product out there, you realized that nobody actually wanted it. And how long did it take from that point to get to that first first customer or the first 10 customers? I think that was that was about a year. I would say it was the, the whole of 2014 when uh, we started showing the platform and going to like pitching competitions and uh, approaching customers, cold calling, uh, mobilizing all our network and then trying to, to talk with actual customers. Also doing our very first basic elemental kind of marketing with mainly with content marketing and producing a few videos and blog posts and trying to show what we do better than the rest. And at that point, we started, it was about a year where we had our first two pilot projects and then actually finding our very first customers who uh, started selling online courses. So at the end of 2014, uh, our first customers had U.S. launches, like so, uh, launching online schools and started selling uh, selling courses. And that was the, the very first days where we, we saw our platform uh, handling, I don't know, 10, 20 sales uh, in a day so that was for us that was transformative we realized that okay it works i mean people can actually go in and they purchase courses and they don't ask for refunds and they actually use the platform so this is something that we can scale much more for people who might not be familiar with the the situation in greece i think it's worth just calling out that this was this was a massive financial crisis and an extremely long recession that lasted what like eight nine years and you guys were building this business right in the middle of all of that Uh, yes that's precisely how it is i guess one of our early mistakes is that even with all these things happening around we didn't shift to external markets or like the u.s market from day one but uh, our first steps, because we had the connections in Greece and we had all this good feedback, we thought that we could also sell it, sell the platform in Greece to, to big businesses. But that really didn't pan out. So uh, we were, I think we are, we are very lucky uh, that we were unsuccessful in finding customers in Greece and also having customers in, the, in Europe. And so we had to go very, very early to the U.S. market where things are much faster. Uh, people know what they want. They're risk tolerant. They're testing new products. They're early adopters. So it's, it's a much uh, bigger and much faster, uh, faster market. And, and to, even to this day, I'm amazed by the selling cycle of our platform. When we talk with, uh, uh, with European customers, it might take, I don't know, four or five weeks for somebody to reach a decision when you're talking with a U.S. customer, giving them the same information, the same the same data, they will make a, a choice in four to five days. So it's, sometimes it's like it's uh, the, the differences are are vast in in how fast things work in the U.S. market. So for that period of about a year, where you're trying to find those first customers, what kind of 
pushback? What kind of objections were you hearing about the the product? You you mentioned some of this in terms of people. Some people seem reluctant to to do business with you because you're you're a startup based in in Greece. But beyond that, when it came to the product, or even the perception of the product through your marketing, and I know that was fairly limited at the time, what kind of pushback were you getting? Yep. Mainly, people were worried. They really liked the product, so, so that that was the thing that kept us in the game. Because even those that didn't, uh, at the end, didn't work with us or didn't reach a decision to to take the leap and uh, of faith and and use the platform, they really had some great feedback. So uh, most of the of the difficult of the pushback that we were getting was about our ability to help them and to be there. So uh, are you going to be there next year? So will you be able to handle so many customers or so many uh, users? Will you be able to assist me with support 24-7 uh, because you are based in a different time zones like seven or eight hours away? So th- these were th- the most difficult things, I would say. And the way to overcome them was with much, much work. So uh, at some points, we were uh, we were doing presentations to people and my schedule was starting at 10 p.m. my local time and ending 2 or 3 p.m. Uh, 3 a.m. Uh, because we had to speak with people from the from the Pacific coast. So uh, it was as simple as that. We had to be there. We had to be present. We had to be able to to give answers to to people very very fast. So at that point we were still four or five people in the team. So as you can imagine we were wearing multiple hats. Uh, people were doing, I was uh, making presentations to customers, and I was also the customer support representative, uh, writing support articles and answering tickets at the same time. So w- what we were trying to be, we were trying to be 24-7 ever present and give the impression that we are a much bigger company. Never lying about how big we are or how many people we have in the team, but always trying to be there to make people feel uh, reassured and make them feel certain about their choice. So fixing uh, stuff, fixing minor bugs very, very fast. We were doing things that should probably uh, are probably unsafe, like, uh, I don't know, changing codes, uh, changing the code or uh, putting new releases with minimum testing, breaking things and, and changing things very, very fast. But we were trying to be better every single day, improve small things, even small things, writing a better article, sending a better answer, creating an ad that would perform uh, half a percent better, trying to improve all things more and uh, just be ever present and give people that reassurance that we are improving this, that this is, if they get something tomorrow or one week from now, they will have a, a better product. That, that was something that helped convince people and help them uh, stay with us. They, they understood that we had the depth about e-learning, we were understanding what we were building. We had a vision. So this vision and our passion about e-learning really resonated with them. But we also had to convince them that if they build a product, people were effectively building a business on top of our platform. So we had to convince them that the platform would be functional, that our support will be there, and that if they need something, they had my mobile phone. So you can imagine people were calling me like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., but they knew that they could find me. So even though they, uh, we were small, uh, that, that was the thing that uh, helped them like take the leap of faith and, uh, and invest in our business. Effect- effectively, we were a bootstrap business, so our first customers were our investors. And we, we still think of them this way, that our best investors are our customers. So you'd been thinking about e-learning 
for a long time, as we talked about, you know, during getting your PhD, you guys are sort of starting to see opportunities as you look at other e-learning products out there. Then you spend two years building the product and then it takes another year before you're finding customers. What kept you going through that time? Like, why did you keep going when a lot of people might have just said, okay, look, we, we kind of spent two years building this product. We, this doesn't seem like there's the market opportunity that maybe we, we thought that there was. And, you know, we're going out there and, and people are sort of saying nice things. They're, ex- they're telling us they like the product, but they all seem to have excuses or objections. Maybe they're just trying to be nice. Maybe maybe we just built the wrong product. Like, what kept you going? Well, as, as sometimes I think that probably we weren't very smart with that. So if we and it also has to do with what you said before about the general environment and the, like a crisis being there. So if I guess if we were in a different environment with many more options, I mean, we could where we could I don't know quit our uh, our startup and start working for like one of the big tech companies or or whatever. This is perhaps something that we might have done. But I guess we have lots of like sunk cost, lots of investment already. So we thought that, okay, this is going somewhere. This is going somewhere. And we uh, and it's uh, lots of greed and lots of uh, determination and lots of, at some point, might even false hope. But we were uh, really believing that this could go somewhere. So uh, it was a very difficult situation. There weren't many chances around. But we were creating our, our chances, the chances are ourselves. So I guess that, that was what made us stay in the game. And also, I believe that we wouldn't have done that if we didn't have the previous experience of doing postgraduate research, uh, which is something that is very difficult, very time consuming. You have to, to invest your whole self for several years in order to get to a result that you like and get accepted by the, I don't know, by your, uh, by your thesis expert and and, and your and other professors and the and the scientific community. So we knew that it takes lots and lots of work to create something that is worthwhile. So I guess it's a it's a mentality of having to put the work, even the difficult work, in order to get to a place where you get rewarded for that. So that's I guess what kept us. In the in the game and the little improvements that we were doing that we were seeing every day. So there were little, even I don't know, it could have been like false signals of hope. But these little things, like getting some good feedback and getting a potential customer from here and somebody who's interested from from another place, the, these are the things that were keeping us in the game. Now, all three of you are or are engineers, and so at some point you realized you know, we need someone to be doing the marketing and sales as well. And that needs to be us. How did you go about learning how to do that? Well, I'm the one that was tasked with uh, with this. So we were three co-founders. I was the one that was uh, further away from coding. So I had I had a previous job at the European Parliament in, in Brussels. Uh, so effectively, for, for our U.S. Uh, uh, listeners, it's something like being a, a chief of staff of a U.S. senator. So I was working in this capacity about R&D policy in, in European Union and stuff like that. So I was already a few years away from, from uh, I had left coding for a few years. Uh, and, and also, I was, I guess, the, the more extrovert of, uh, of the team. So I was tasked with uh, with marketing. So obviously I had no idea about all this stuff. So I started reading every kind of blog and, and podcast and everything that you can imagine about like what is a startup and, and what is marketing and what is content marketing. So I was discovering all these things 
And also what we understood that we knew that we needed to do is do all sorts of startup training that young people do these days. Like we were going into, we participated in, uh, in startup competitions. The rest, I guess, were guys that were 20 or 25 years old. We were 35, so a bit uh, older. Uh, but still, we knew that there, there was something that we needed to learn there. We needed to learn how to pitch. We needed to learn how to make our value proposition concise. We needed to, st- to learn how to do a business model canvas and start to see what we have to, what is it that we are selling? What is our business proposition? So th- these were baby steps, I guess, but these were things that we understood that we uh, lacked and we, we needed to, to create this understanding. So I guess we started from a very basic understanding of, of, of business. Effectively, we thought that we just create the best possible product and it will sell itself. And when we got out, we realized that it doesn't work this way. So we had to, to do all the, all the learning and start acquiring this knowledge. So effectively, I built our, our first uh, digital marketing campaigns, like created a Facebook account and obviously created a few terrible campaigns that didn't work or we didn't know how to measure our conversions. All the mistakes that you can see in a, in a startup, we probably made them. But we made mistakes and we tried. That's, I guess, what makes a, effectively what can make a, a startup successful is not what you know, but how fast you learn. And we were very fast learners. So we were making mistakes, big and small, but we were trying to do something better the next day, like a better ad, copying an ad or stealing an ad idea from a competitor, whatever, anything that could make uh, small things uh, work and bring some people over to our website, like creating a website, all the basic stuff to put our pl- platform in front of people's eyes and have them test the platform because we knew that once they actually saw the product and used the product, that they would value it and, uh, and, uh, and get uh, hooked. Uh, but it was a very difficult task for us to get them there, like create awareness around our platform, get people inside and get them to start using the, the platform. So some, something that I can mention is that for the, for the first three and a half years, the trials of our, I mean, it's a SaaS product. So obviously people want to start a free trial. That's the best way we are trying to be product led. So people want to just do a free trial. So for the first three and a half years, we were creating the trials manually. So people were coming to our website. They were uh, like asking for a free trial and then obviously thinking that they would get it immediately on the spot. And then they were receiving an email that says uh, the team is working and we will send you the trial in a few minutes or hours. So uh, my co-founder, our CTO, Fanis, was waking up uh, early in the morning and trying to see how many trials we had overnight. And he was manually copying and pasting uh, databases, creating a new trial. And then we were emailing the credentials to the potential customer to, to come inside. So, so these were the things that, uh, that we were doing and uh, trying to get as many people as possible to like actually test the the product, and then we were hoping that the product will do the rest. We've all heard, you know, Paul Graham and the whole you know do things that don't scale. Yet it's very easy to spend your time trying to come up with scalable solutions <laughs> too soon. And one interesting lesson I think with you guys is that you really took that that sort of you know advice on board, and you spent a lot of time and effort creating 
very customized solutions for some of your early customers, which wasn't scalable, which was expensive, but was probably the right thing to do at that time. So tell us a little bit about that and, and like why you took that approach and, and, and what you learned from doing that. Yes. So I think Paul Graham is very right to say that uh, you have to do unscalable things. The catch here is that you don't know which unscalable things are worthwhile or are the ones that will lead you to, to success. So we're probably doing lots of unscalable things even today, and some of them we shouldn't. But one of the things, as we mentioned, that we were doing back then, once at that point when our e-learning expertise faced the marketing, uh, digital marketing and e-commerce reality. This is where we had a couple of customers who were, we were very lucky to get their feedback. So when they were asking for something, we knew that it had to be done because it wasn't like some kind of, uh, uh, or it wasn't a weird request, but they knew because they knew how to sell. So anything that had to do with e-learning, we were very reluctant to change and we were insisting and we were insisting on our vision and why for example the videos should be shown this way because we knew from research and papers that this is the way to show a video or that that's the the correct way to to show text on the screen or and to navigate within an online course we were sticking to this uh, to to our guns when it came to this but when it came to how you actually sell what you tell to the customer how you formulate your checkout funnel how you set it up uh, how you should show your, your coupons and the way people like to redeem coupons and how there should be like a thank you page afterwards and where you can upsell to customers. That was a treasure trove of knowledge that we didn't have. So we, we knew that at that point we should sit down and listen. And we were doing customizations, we, which were very, very unscalable. So we were changing codes in different people's instances and then every time we had a new release, it was a nightmare to go over the, I don't know, five at that point customers and try to merge the code so that we don't override the, any customizations that we might have done. And in many cases, we overwrote this and we had to do them again. So that was very, very unscalable and impractical at the moment. But we were trying at that point, we were, we were succeeding. We, were, we had our first uh, successes, I guess, identifying the things that we were meaningful for the e-commerce uh, aspect of, of the platform. And then the product became much more balanced. So not only we could we create great learning experiences, online courses that people would love and they, uh, and they would use, but also we knew how to sell them effectively, how to create a great a great funnel and help people sell online courses. So what we learned over time is how to make this more scalable and, and put this into the platform. So at some point, once we reached 100 customers, we stopped doing customizations or doing fewer of them and try to do things the normal way and just keep improving the platform. So at that point, we realized that we had the, we reached what, uh, this uh, elusive beast of uh, product market fit, uh, this, uh, this stage, and, and we knew that we couldn't do customizations anymore, but any valuable feedback, should we should wait a bit and put it into the platform as a feature that all our customers could use. Obviously, there's a very delicate balance there, and in many cases, we made mistakes like either adding things too early or too slow, but this didn't kill us. And at that point, we started protecting the platform. So that, that was uh, that's when the platform really became 
a, a thing of its own, a, a totem, and, and we wanted to like uh, preserve it and, and improve it and put it above the, any individual customer. So how have things been for you guys this year, uh, obviously with the pandemic? How has that affected your business? Well, the, the pandemic is a, is a once-in-a-century event, and we really, really hope that this will go away uh, very, very fast. But I have to admit that online businesses in general, and uh, e-learning is uh, our sector, is one of those uh, online businesses, we're really helped by this thing. So we really hope that it goes away fast. But in any case, we have to be ready in case it doesn't. And we try to help as many people as possible to make the transition into online businesses. So as you can imagine, with the lockdown, all training overnight became online. So if you couldn't do online training, chances were you couldn't do any training, any training at all. So I say that from our side, it was COVID was an accelerator. So things that would have happened in 10 years really happened in two to three months. So all the trends that we were seeing are still there. So remote working isn't something that started with COVID. We were a a remote company from day one and uh, more than 70% of our staff works from various places, uh, Greece, Cyprus, and other other countries. So that's not a new thing. Or people trying to do side projects or try to create uh, side income uh, for, for their businesses or try to portray their, themselves as experts and enhance their branding through the means of an online course or an ebook. These were new things. But obviously with COVID, all these trends really coalesced and, and uh, all things really accelerated. So it was some crazy times, a few months with a growth of about 15% per month. Uh, which also, it was very difficult for our own people because, as you can imagine, everybody was working from home, schools were closed, so uh, kids, families uh, were, were trying to balance that and the well-being of our, of our employees and also trying to help many, many people, thousands of people who were panicking, who were losing their day jobs, who were losing access to, to, to their customers or ways to, to make money, who were trying to do what we call emergency education. So you can imagine that you are a fitness center or, a, I don't know, a yoga salon, and then overnight you don't have access to your customers and you are trying to make things do by using Skype, Zoom, phone, or an online course platform in certain cases. There were lots of things happening at the same time. We had our existing customers who already had understood the business models and had already set up some great online schools who started selling like crazy. And in in some cases, they doubled or tripled in one to two months, like from mid-March, effectively, when uh, the lockdown really started spreading around the globe to April or May, some schools went from 20 to 60,000 paying customers. So as you can imagine, they doubled or tripled their, their, their revenues. Also, uh, lots of people who were already thinking about online courses or it was they seemed they thought that having an online course would be nice to have immediately they realized that this is must have they they have to be online if they're not online they're losing business they cannot reach their customers so that was a, another huge growth factor but also there were other people who are trying to find a temporary solution, like do emergency education, as I mentioned, fitness, yoga, sports clubs, online summits, and people who are doing conferences and uh, and events. Everybody tried to transition into online business model and trying to find alternative revenue revenue sources. So we had to help them as well. 
so uh, one of the one of the ways we did that is that uh, obviously lots of people started using Zoom. We know that's one of the huge success stories. So our platform was mainly mostly tailored for self-paced courses, or so people were recording their their videos and then they were putting them up. But we really understood that we we needed to help people, even people that don't have a ready-made curriculum and they want to teach live courses. So uh, we gathered our team. And in uh, about three weeks, we released a Zoom integration so that anybody can use our platform, even for teaching live classes, either one-on-one, small group, or, or a, do a whole webinar with 500 people. You can just plug in your Zoom account, even a free account, and you can start uh, teaching uh, overnight without having anything pre-recorded. So th- these are new, lots of uh, new things happening, uh, obviously. That's a huge experiment also when it comes to online training. Even the, the school system and the, the, the whole academia is trying to find its steps and, and its path in this, in this crisis. So it's, uh, there's lots of unexplored things and lots of potential that, uh, that, uh, that is ready for, for harvesting or, or at least for trying. Yeah, I think e-learning is a, is a fascinating space. And you're right that one of the things that's happened with COVID, it, it has accelerated a lot of that and, and been a forcing function for people to start thinking more about taking learning into e-learning. And, and I think if there's, you know, any kind of like silver lining here, I hope that this is also going to be an opportunity for us to really do a much better job with, you know, children and education and and using technology in better and smarter ways, because it feels to me like, I mean, my kids go through this, you know, the, a a lot of the times they're still doing, you know, very, you know, synchronous education. and, And do you really get that much value by staring at your computer while your teacher is talking live for an hour? And are there, you know, smarter ways to teach and educate, you know, using, making use of technology. So I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, we're going to see more and more of those things coming along and it's great to see what you guys are doing. So we should wrap up. We should get onto the lightning round. I'm going to ask you seven quick fire questions. Just try to answer them as quickly as you can. Sure. Ready to go? Go ahead. Okay. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? That startups are a, a marathon, not a race. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? Always Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I think it breathes innovation and radical way of thinking and approaching things. And that's always useful, especially in days like that, in times like that. I love that book. (laughs) Uh, What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? Patience. I guess that's uh, that's uh, the the best thing that you can have, especially with with people who are the ones that, that need it the most. Yeah, and, and I think your story also is a great example of patience and, and, and perseverance. So what's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Sleep. I think I, I'm missing a few years of, of sleep. Uh, so that's uh, whenever I, I realize, I know that lots of people are struggling with this, but I, I really know that when I can get, I don't know, seven hours of sleep, I know that the next day uh, I'm, I'm going to kill it. So that, that's, uh, that's the thing I, I miss the most. What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the time? There's, there's lots of, of craziness. Sometimes I think the most radical thing I, I think about is trying to do what we did now again with the things that I know. 
So I, I, it's, I, I know that it, it might seem a bit, uh, a bit uh, strange or a bit masochistic even, but I would try to build the same thing starting again with, uh, with all the, the, the knowledge that we have that we have now. That would have been a, a great experience. Yeah, very masochistic. <laughs> What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? Wow, I don't know. Uh, I, I guess I wore daily a suit for five years in the when I was working in the in the European Parliament as a as a policy analyst, and uh, I haven't uh, touched uh, a tie since. I love that. And what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? My family. That's uh, that's uh, the thing that uh, all all of us, I guess, the three co-founders, because we're we're almost in the in the same in the same age, raising small children and and going through this uh, with them also going through the, the through covid and the pandemic and the remote teaching uh, this is the thing that uh, that keeps us uh, working and keeps us uh, alive awesome panas thank you it's been it's been a pleasure and and I really enjoyed learning about the learn world story and how you guys have built this business into you know multiple seven figure saas company and I think there's some really important lessons for a lot of people in terms of, you know, the three or four years of, of the journey from building the product to finding customers. For a lot of founders, it's, it's you know, that, that getting started is, is really hard. And, and I think there's a lot of inspiration and, and, and advice that you shared there. Uh, if people want to find out more about Learn Worlds, they can go to learnworlds.com. And if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? They can just shoot me uh, an email at hello at learnworlds.com. I'm always there. I'm always seeing all the incoming uh, emails still. Uh, So uh, we're happy to to connect with uh, with anyone personally. Awesome. Thank you so much, Panos. It's been a pleasure and uh, I wish you all the best. Thanks for having me, Omer. Stay safe.